Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. Today is a bonus episode from a talk I gave on the main stage of the Story Conference in Nashville, Tennessee in 2018. In this talk, I explore the surprising missing piece that keeps most of us from growing our own integrity. I'll also explore why a lack of humility and dismissing cliches can keep us from some of the biggest moments of growth in our professional and personal lives. I hope you enjoy the show. I'm so thrilled to be here, and it's such a sacred trust. I always uh, resent Harris when he has me go last. Usually I have like three talks, and then I just mark off all the insightful things that other people said during the conference, and whatever's left is what you get. So it's... It's like the hot dog of conference talks. <laughs> this is going to be great. But a quick shout out, my dad is here. My uncle Jim is here. We've got folks from our team from all over the continent that are here. My sister is here, who's the director of our apprenticeship program. And of course, my nephews. Can we all give them a round of applause? They're wonderful. Yeah. So I get to lead an executive coaching firm. And I always struggle to explain what it is we do until actually this conference. I was like, oh, this is what we do. What we do is we work with people to help them accomplish the impossible. And it's true. Uh, when we work with people over and over and over and over again, what we hear from them is, Jason, if you would have told me this would be my life a year before I ever met you, I would have told you you were crazy. I would have told you you were mad. I would have told you it was impossible. And so it's really fun to traffic in the business of the impossible. And so really quickly, just to close things out, I want to pull the curtain back a little bit about what we do for a living so that you can see some of the things that actually most people overlook when it comes to accomplishing the impossible. Does that sound good? Okay, that's what we're going to do. Okay, so where should we... Oh, oh, this is... I can't wait to share this story. So as a way of getting into this, I want to share a little bit about how I got into this work. And usually when people ask me, how did I get into this work, I lie to them. And I give them a story that is a nice story, but it's not actually true. And I'm going to tell you the true story for the first time, which is actually a story I've never shared publicly for a very specific reason. I'm really so thrilled that I get to share it with you today. And so the way I got into this work is I was working years ago. I was working at this incredible organization that specialized in unleashing human creativity and potential. And I got to travel all over the world. I got to learn from the best. It was so much fun. And then I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you're in the middle of an organization. It's like the Ariel moment from The Little Mermaid. You want more? You want to be where the leaders are. You want to see, want to see him serving. I mean, it's no frozen, but come on now. And I had that moment. I don't ever know if you've ever had this moment where you're wanting more and the people who are leading the organization are saying, just wait. It's like, you're not ready, just wait. And I say, like, okay, I'll wait. And a year would pass and say, I want more. And they say, just wait. And a year would pass and I say, I want more. And they say, just wait. And they're awesome. But I was beginning to wonder if I was ever going to be able to have the opportunities that I was wanting in order to grow the ways that I wanted to. So I was in this season of discernment. Have you ever been there? Like the clash? Should I stay or should I go? Air guitar. All right, like this kind of moment. Where I was like, I didn't know what to do. So I was in this like, season of discernment. I was trying to figure out what should I do. And I, I want to make a healthy decision. And I ran across during this season a trailer for a documentary called Waking Sleeping Beauty. Has anyone ever seen this documentary? Oh, that makes me so happy that you haven't because you get to watch it for the first time when you go home. Waking Sleeping Beauty is this amazing piece of art. The trailer alone will make you weep. And it tells the greatest comeback story in the history of entertainment. A lot of you don't know that Disney animation in the early 1980s was about to be shut down and sold for scraps. 
And then through a confluence of amazing events, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, a few other amazing people came into the system and they reinvigorated Disney animation to the juggernaut that it is today. And it wouldn't have happened without these people. And it tells that story. And so I, I watched this like, this is incredible. And I bought a bunch of tickets and I went, I live in LA and I went to go watch this movie. And as I was watching it, it's I was just so moved, I was so touched, and not to ruin the ending or anything, but in the movie, Jeffrey Katzenberg is one of the main players. He actually leaves to go start DreamWorks SKG with Spielberg and Geffen. And in the movie, Michael Eisner didn't like that he left. And there's this line that Michael Eisner says where he says, you know, Jeffrey was being selfish. If Jeffrey just would have waited a little bit longer, he would have got what he wanted. Sound familiar? And so I'm watching this and I'm like, huh, like I was connecting with that moment. Like if Jeffrey would have been just wait, wait a little bit longer, he would have got what he wanted. And so the movie ends, the credits roll, and because it's LA, the people who were doing the screening said, hey, we have a special surprise for you. The director of the movie is gonna come out and do a Q&A, and the director of that movie was Don Hahn. <laughs> and this is like 2009, 2010. So Don Hahn walks out, and I immediately raised my hand. I got a question. I don't usually, I'm usually terrified to you know, raise hands and things. I raised my hand, and they give me the microphone, and I asked Don Hahn, I said, hey, um, do you think Michael Eisner was telling the truth? Like, do you think that if Jeffrey would have stayed, he would have eventually got what he wanted? Of course, I'm not asking about them, I'm asking about me, hashtag narcissism. <laughs> and Don gives this great two responses. The well, first one's like a PC response, which is he goes, I think Michael Eisner thought that he was telling the truth. That's a great answer, <laughs> that's a good answer. But then he says these words, and I will never forget this. He said, but here's the deal. And he points to the wall, because we're in a movie theater, right? Points to the wall, he says, in the theater next to us, another movie is screening tonight called How to Train Your Dragon. It's a, it's a movie Disney never would have told, and it's a movie told in a way Disney never would have told it, and Jeffrey Katzenberg made that movie. He said, sometimes you have to leave, not because you're not gonna get what you want if you stay, but because your story has to be told someplace else. Come on, Don, <laughs> come on, right? And no kidding, that was a defining moment for me. And I thought about that for a few months and then I finally, because of that moment, I resigned from my job and I started a company that eventually became Novus Global, that eventually intersected with Harris and then we got to work together and then eventually Harris invested in Story and then eventually Story's having Don Hahn speak. And so when Don called Harris, he probably didn't realize when he was calling Harris to talk about Story that he was actually one of the godfathers of Story on accident. <laughs> which I think is incredible. Now, before everyone goes out and commits vocational suicide, in the news today, it's like a cult, you know? Like a thousand people drink Kool-Aid and quit their jobs, <laughs> kind of a thing, right? To go out and quit your job is a little bit of missing the point, and this is what I think the spirit of what Don is saying, this is one of the reasons I think Don is Don, and Steve is Steve, and not anybody else you respect is whatever their first names are. It wasn't about whether you should leave or where should you go. It was about whether you should stay or whether you should grow. In order to do the impossible, people who are able to repeatedly do the impossible over and over again have this intense appetite for growth, even more than success. They actually value growing more than they value being successful. When they experience a challenge, like, I want to do that. And in my experience, you can think of most people existing like a, like a series of bullseyes, like concentric circles. And most people, the center of their bullseye is a thing called comfort. Everyone say comfort. Comfort, right? And I see this all the time. And you hear this all the time. Like if, if you're talking to people and you say, hey, how much money do you want to make? They'll say, I want to make just enough money to be comfortable, right? And I swear to you, every time a person says that, there's an angel who gets its wings <laughs> torn off. 
Because you were not designed to be comfortable. You were designed to grow. And there's a paradox there because you'll never be fully comfortable until you learn how to be uncomfortable. The people who are the most successful find comfort in being uncomfortable. In fact, if they're not uncomfortable, there's like a little warning sign that goes off. Right? And I've discovered in working with clients, one of the things that we do is we hold space for them to craft their discomfort intentionally. We hold a space for them to move into discomfort on purpose because that's where the growth is. It's so much fun. And here's one of the ways that we want to invite you to consider embracing growth. And I want to do it with another story. Ready? Okay, great. So this one, a good friend of mine, his name is Dr. Goody Marcus Goodlow, and he years ago wrote his doctor dissertation on Martin Luther King Jr. and how Dr. King worked with athletes and entertainers in a way that had never been done before to advance civil rights. So a lot of us know about the March on Washington. What a lot of people don't know is that Dr. King and his group got like Charlton Heston and Sammy Davis Jr., all these people to fly to Washington at the same time. And while a speech was happening, Charlton Heston would like knock on the senator from Ohio's door in the Capitol and say, hey, my name is Charlton Heston. I'd like to talk to you about civil rights, which is kind of awesome, right? Uh, both for civil rights and the senator from Ohio. Like, that's pretty awesome. And so he wrote this doctor dissertation, and it's a doctor dissertation, but he wanted to translate it into a book. And so he said to me, he said, hey, Jason, would you help me translate what I wrote, the brilliance that I wrote here into the way that normal people talk? And I was like, I can do that. So we got together and we spent the whole summer in a garage recording these conversations with Goody, talking about all these things and talking about original documents and sort documents about how Dr. King worked with athletes and entertainers to move the movement forward in a way that had never really been done before. It was an incredible social architecture. It was really beautiful. And while we were hanging out, he told me this story that I'd never heard before, and I want to share it with you. It's one of my favorite stories, and here's how it goes. Most of us have uh, heard that I have a dream speech. Raise your hand if you've heard that I have a dream speech. Yeah, of course. All right, great. So this, I want to show you a quote real quick. It's trite. It's cliche. You've used it too many times already. Now, if I would have seen this in a vacuum and, I, and you say, what is this person talking about? And you would have made a list of a thousand things you probably wouldn't have guessed. But this is one of Dr. King's writing staff saying this about his I have a dream speech. Most of us don't realize that Dr. King had given that I have a dream section several times before. He did it in Chicago, he did it in Detroit, and here's the thing, it never landed. It never went, I mean, it's always good because it's him, right? But like it never ripped the roofs off of houses like he wanted to. And his speechwriters begged him not to deliver those lines. And he didn't plan on it. Like in the text, with his handwritten notes and everything, I have dreams nowhere. And he got up there and he's doing his thing. And a lot of you, if you've seen the, the speech, it's a good speech. Like, you know, he's doing his thing and it's fine, but it's not really landing the way that he really knows he could do it. And so he's wrapping his talk up, like he's landing the plane of his talk. And he's saying like, go back to Mississippi. And then behind him, Mahalo Jackson says, tell him about the dream, Martin. And he kind of like waves her off a little bit. He's like, go back to Mississippi. And she says it again. She says, tell him about the dream, Martin. And then you see, and you can watch the video, you see King put his notes aside and grab the lectern. And he says, so though we may be struggling for today or tomorrow, I still have a dream. And then one of his speechwriters in the audience goes, oh, shit. <laughs> He's going to talk about the dream. <laughs> and one of his other aides sitting a little ways away says, this audience better hold on because we're about to have some church. And then King opens up a can of oratorical whoop-ass, <laughs> the likes of which our nation has never seen before. And the rest is history. And it all came from something that someone else described as cliche. Now, here's the deal. It may have been cliche, but it was a beautiful cliche, wasn't it? And in my work, whenever people ask me to explain my work, it's always disappointing. I took the bait yesterday during the, the roundtable discussion. They're like, hey, what's coaching? And then I, like an idiot, answered. Because coaching is not about content. It's about context. 
And what that means is, look, coaching is letting you learn to apply cliches to your life. And I want to say this really clearly. The path to the extraordinary life, the path to living a life of joy and happiness and fulfillment, the path to telling great stories, the path to inventing new types of stories, I promise you, is paved with beautiful cliché. But how many times are we more interested in things that are new than interested in things that are true? The people that I admire and the people who reinvent themselves and the people who step into new parts of themselves aren't necessarily finding new ideas. They're just applying the ones they already know in ways no one's ever thought of before. And there's something beautiful about that. There's something meaningful about that. In fact, one time years ago, how many of you have ever like not done something that's probably a good idea because you quote heard that before? You know what I'm talking about? Years ago, this is such a gut-wrenching thing for me. I had a really, really good friend, maybe my best friend, and his life was imploding. And he didn't know how to pull out of it. He was just bad choice after bad decision after bad decision. And he was reaching out for help and we were having coffee one day and he was asking me for whatever wisdom I had. And I was offering him all the best ideas that I thought would help him. And like a fencer parrying every blow, he was like, nah, I've heard that before. 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 And my friend destroyed his life, not because he didn't know what to do, but because he refused to do what he already knew. And when I work with artists, and when we work, our firm, we work with Fortune 500 companies, we work with uh, professional athletes, professional artists, multimillionaire business leaders, we don't teach you anything. A rookie coach is gonna teach you something, right? But what we do is we're like midwives. We hold space for you to do what you naturally want to do. We hold space for something new to be born by doing what people have been doing since the dawn of humanity. And a lot of us oftentimes are looking for powerful reminders. But what we should be looking for is powerful relationships. A lot of times we're looking for the new insight or the new toy. And what we should be looking for are relationships where we can work out the toys we already have. I want to illustrate this with, I want to give you my favorite cliche, right? It's one of my ideas when I bring it up to people, they're like, nah, we don't want to talk about that. The word is integrity. Everyone say integrity. All right, you're doing great, okay? So in our work, we talk a lot about integrity, a lot about integrity. We love talking about it, and our clients hate us for it. It's the best. And when we're talking about integrity, I'm not talking about morality. I want to make sure those, I'm not talking about being a good person. So I want to define integrity. Integrity, this is how we define integrity. Integrity is doing what you say you're going to do. That's integrity. Now, some of you are like, oh, that hurts. Integrity is doing what you say you're going to do, which means, it's again, not moral, which means Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. He had integrity. He said he was going to eat you. (laughs) And then he ate you, right? I mean, which means evil people we wish didn't have integrity, right? Don't you wish that like Hitler on the morning that they invaded Poland was like, nah, I think I'll watch Netflix. Like the world would be a better place if Hitler didn't have integrity, but he did what he said he was gonna do. Because integrity isn't about morality, it's about power. And it's about the power that you've been given in your own human spirit. Do you actually say you're going to do something and then do it? And it's a simple idea, and it's an easy idea to say, oh, I already know about that. But let me tell you something. It is a game changer. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? Yeah, and just keep your hand up. How many of you have ever broken a New Year's resolution? <laughs> yes, that's why I had to keep your hand up. <laughs> if you've ever made one, you've broken one. And just think about this for a second, and maybe we can do a little uh, audience participation. In what ways might your life be better had you kept your New Year's resolutions? What do you think? Yeah, you'd feel better. <laughs> yeah, great. What else? You'd be healthier, right? How many of you, if you would keep your New Year's resolutions, your body would look different? 
okay? Bigger for me, thinner for others, right, whatever, right? How many of you have more energy if you have to keep your New Year's resolutions? How many of you would have more money if you kept your New Year's resolutions, right? How many of you had less money, but you'd have more vacation if you would have kept New Year's resolutions, right? Here's a fascinating thing. Your ability to do what you say you're going to do is one of the defining characteristics of who you are as a human being. And what's fun about integrity is it's not a light switch. Either you have it or you don't. What's fun about integrity, it's a volume knob. You can actually turn it up. And when we work with clients, we say, I was just talking to a guy who runs a multi-billion dollar organization. And I said, hey, look, if we do this work together, if we go into this kind of relationship together, I'm going to care about your integrity more than anyone has ever in your life. And it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable. But what I can promise you is that it's going to speed up your life in a way that you have never experienced before. Because how many of you right now have you thought, man, if I actually did what I said I was going to do, that book would be written already. That film would be made already. And by the way, if you want to rapid iterate, what we've been talking about this whole time is like, if you want to fail fast, there's no way to fail faster than to actually do what you say you're going to do. You will fail faster. You will bump into things more often and you will therefore grow more often. It's a beautiful thing. There is a direct correlation between your ability to do what you say you're gonna do and your ability to grow. But people don't like to do it because it's a cliche. Right? If I were to say to you, the thing that's holding you back most is integrity, you probably wouldn't write that down. You'd probably tell me to go to hell <laughs> or something, or maybe not, I don't know. You probably wouldn't like say thank you for it, but it's amazing. Here's the thing about that. With that comes a degree of, of like cynicism Right? Oftentimes when we work with people because they're searching for the new toy, there's an assumption that says everything I already know cannot help me. And what I love about this kind of work is we get to explore old things and to unlearn our cynicism. One of my favorite quotes in educational psychology is the hardest thing to learn is that which you think you already know. The hardest thing to learn is that which you think you already know. And so many times we don't apply things that will change our lives because we think we already know it. And oftentimes the things that we think that we already know actually rob us from experiencing the joy and wonder that life has for us. And I wanna give an example of that. So this is the last story. I wanna take you back to 1995, Christmas day, December 25th. And that year, I don't know if you remember, but that was the year that the Super Nintendo came out. Any Super Nintendo fans in the house? Super Mario Kart, Donkey Kong? All right, yeah, you're there, you're there with me, okay, right? So I wanted a Super Nintendo, but I didn't really ask for one. What I asked for were rollerblades. Because in 1995, rollerblades were cool, which is a hard thing to say with a straight face. <laughs> rollerblades were cool in 1995. So that's what I asked for. Not only that, but my parents are cool. My, I got my parents to agree to buy me the rollerblades a month early, and I got to play with them in our unfinished basement. I lived in Kansas. It was cold in the winter. Right? I said, hey, can I get the rollerblades a month early so I can like, skate around in circles in the basement for a while and have fun with them, and then on Christmas, I'll rewrap it and open it for the camera so that they can send the video, the VHS to my grandparents so that they can like, share Christmas with each other before Skype and all those kinds of things, right? And so my parents were like, fine. So they you know, got me the rollerblades and I played with them and then a month later, it's Christmas morning. We're opening all the presents and usually you save the best present for last. I don't know how it works in your family with religious holidays or whatever, but you save the best present for last. So we open everything and there's some good stuff there. And uh, the last present is the big box, is the rollerblades, all right? And, I'm such a brat, right? I'm like, woo, kind of a thing. And my parents are such troopers. Because like, this was the arrangement, right? And here's the fun thing. I reached out to my folks when I was remembering this moment, because it's a moment about cynicism. It's a moment about like, you know, it's rollerblades, it's what I asked for. I know it's in the box, uh, which sounds a lot like a line from Seven. What's in the box? So, you know, like, I know it's in the box. And so I asked my parents, hey, do you have footage from that? Did you record that by chance? And they did. Can, can I show it to you? 
<laughs> okay. So here's me at Christmas morning. Here we go. Well, he knows. I wonder what it is. Oh, surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Well, now, you wanted those skates. Yeah, yeah but mom. I had them already. I've had them for a month now. Yeah, well, yeah. well, at least we get it on tape. Here, is it right side up? Upside down. Oh, those were awesome. Okay, good. Roller blade. Okay, is it, is it right side up? Well, I just didn't want them to... Open it sideways. Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! This is my favorite part. Yeah! <laughs> so here's the thing. The cynicism almost kept me from opening the gift. And I wonder, we got a new year coming up for story 19. Are you gonna open the gift? Are you gonna have the courage and the humility to say, I don't necessarily know what this year holds? but I cannot wait to open it. And if you are able to humble yourself and get past our cynicism, we can open new gifts. We can explore beautiful cliches. We can find new things in our lives. We can go where we're gonna grow, and in doing so, is it possible that we will create the impossible? Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and remember, dare to go beyond high performance. Thank you.